Our text this evening is the 12th chapter of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. I think we're all sufficiently aware of the fact that Christmas has been commercialized in our culture and that sentiment founded on everything from winter scenery to family reunions, for the most part, has replaced, for most Americans, its theological and redemptive meaning. Far too, far too few Americans any longer could define the word incarnation. Our culture has managed to reduce virtually anything of great historic meaning and purpose to either commercial enterprise or treacly emotion. And it's our duty as Christians to refuse to succumb to that temptation and likewise to fight to preserve the history that alone explains the existence of the Christmas holiday in the first place. The history, even the bare echo of which, still makes Christmas far and away the most important holiday of the year. To encourage you to that end, I've chosen for my first Advent sermon this year a text not usually preached at Christmas, but one that very definitely defines its importance. In this chapter, John explains the origin of the persecution of the church and of its tribulations in the world. As before in this book, John pulls back to survey the entire course of human history. We've already had intimations of this in earlier chapters of Revelation, but this is the first time that John lays out in a systematic way the struggle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the evil one. In the previous chapter, for example, the struggle was between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. But here in chapter 12, we are reminded that the kingdom of the world is in fact more profoundly the kingdom of Satan. Remember, Paul identifies Satan as the prince of this world. The persecution, the tribulations of the church is the manifestation in history or are the manifestation in history of the spiritual battle that has been underway from the beginning of human history. John expects that by laying bare uh, the real cause behind our struggles in this world, the followers of Christ will be steeled to withstand their tribulations and their temptations and remain faithful through them. Revelation 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. There is a long-standing debate between Roman Catholic and Protestant interpreters of the Bible as to whether this woman is Mary because her offspring in verse 5 seems clearly to be Jesus um, or represents the ideal church because in the rest of the chapter she seems to occupy that role. Later we will read that this woman is persecuted and flees into the wilderness and in verse 17, her offspring are said to be the saints. 
All in all, it seems clear that the woman is the church, the Israel of God. The 12 stars on her head represent the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes, you remember, perhaps, represented the church already in Revelation chapter 7. A number of times in the Old Testament, Israel is said to be the mother of the people of God, even in travail, about to give birth. In the New Testament, the church is also, again, said to be the mother of the faithful. As the church father Cyprian once put it, you cannot have God for your father if you do not have the church for your mother. Mary, in fact, was only the greatest in a long line of women who would bring forth successive deliverers for the people of God all of which led inexorably to the Messiah himself. Eve, whose seed would crush the head of the serpent, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, and so on. The ancient church, as it were, was laboring to give birth to the Messiah. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. Now, John is going to leave us in no doubt about who the dragon is. He tells us in verse 9 that this is Satan. The use of the image of a dragon or sea monster as the embodiment of evil is, you remember, a commonplace of the Old Testament. You remember the references to Leviathan and to Rahab and to Behemoth in the prophets and in the book of Job. The seven heads and the seven crowns and the ten horns are all intended to suggest great power and majesty. As a description, of course, like so much else in the book of Revelation, it is highly imaginative. We're not supposed to try to figure out how ten horns fit on seven heads. His his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. This is another picture of the power of the dragon. So colossal a creature that with one sweep of his tail, he can brush a third of the stars from heaven uh, out of their position. And the next image indicates that Satan's great purpose or intention was to destroy the church in the world by destroying the Messiah himself. This mad frenzy to destroy the seed of the woman has been the story of the world from the beginning. Satan tried to kill the seed at the time of the flood by having Sarah twice taken into the harem of a heathen king, by having all the male children of Israel killed by the midwives in Egypt, by driving Saul to hurl a spear at David and then to hunt him down to murder him, to prompt the wicked queen Athaliah to destroy the royal seed of the house of Judah, whose plan, you remember, was thwarted when the infant Joash was hidden from her, and so on. Satan's plan then came to its fulfillment in the Messiah's own lifetime from Herod's attempt to murder him as a baby, finally to the crucifixion itself. There too, especially there, the devil was defeated, for the cross was not Satan's triumph, 
but God's and ours. And it was the blow that would finally crush Satan under the Messiah's feet. But beaten there, Satan has not surrendered and is still, still seeking to destroy the Messiah and his seed. She gave birth to a male child, one that was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God to which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. The woman is no longer in heaven. Now she's on earth. Uh, Such sudden switches in perspective are characteristic of the book of Revelation. In its use here, as also in chapter 11, and then again in chapter 13, the period of three and a half years, or 1,260 days, or 42 months, all three forms of the description are found in the book of Revelation, seems to cover the entire history of the church's life between the ascension of the Lord to heaven and his second coming. The 42 months, the whole period of three and a half years, may derive from the 42 stages of Israel's progress through the wilderness as listed in Numbers 33, verses 5 to 49. Think of the wilderness as life in this world, whether the life of an individual Christian or the life of the church as a whole, in 42 units of time, and you have the idea of the three and a half years. 42 because it is life in the wilderness, in the desert, as we will see. The 1,260 days or three and a half years, a time that appears repeatedly in the biblical apocalypses of Daniel and Revelation, also represent a time of great evil, a time of great tribulation, a time of great suffering. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Now the war between Michael and his angels and the dragon and his angels should not be thought of as an event in time or as an event that follows the event that was just described in the previous verses. Rather, it is an apocalyptic depiction of the triumph of the kingdom of God over the devil's kingdom uh, over the entire time related in verses 1 through 6. The victory of the kingdom of God did not occur in angelic combat. It occurred at the cross and the empty tomb and then in the faithful life of the saints as we're going to read later in verse 11. Remember, for example, the Lord's remark to his disciples upon their return from their first preaching tour. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Whether in heaven or on earth, it's the same warfare. The one is the manifestation of the other. Now in verses 10 through 12, John tells us what his vision of the heavenly war means. 
And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Now, the first verse of the song, sung by the great voice, uh, parallels the same thing that we read in chapter 11, verse 15. Another indication that this victory is the same great victory celebrated in the previous chapter. Likewise, a review of the entire history of mankind and of the kingdom of God in the world. The description of Satan as the accuser of the brothers suggests that he's constantly arguing that the saints don't deserve God's favor and that God is unjust to extend his favor to them. But, of course, his accusations are utterly hypocritical and insincere because he's been himself at work to induce human beings in general and the saints in particular to live in just such a way as would not be worthy of God's favor. The identification here of Satan as the accuser of the brothers is further indication that the angelic battle of verses 7 through 9 was a metaphor before the struggle or the battle, the war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Here the same contest is depicted not as a battle between groups of angels, but as a courtroom drama pitting two lawyers against one another with Michael perhaps understood as the advocate of the people of God as he is in some of the Jewish writings of the period. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. The defeat of the devil may mean rejoicing in heaven at the prospect of his doom, but it means more fighting and more suffering for the people of God on earth, who have to endure the onslaught of this defeated but still dangerous enemy. If you've ever read William Manchester's biography of Douglas MacArthur, you know how uh, bitterly MacArthur's officers and men resented his announcing triumphantly to the press that a certain island had been taken and the enemy defeated and that only mopping up was left to do, mopping up was the term of art, when in fact that mopping art was some of the, or mopping up was some of the bitterest fighting of the war. A cornered enemy with nothing to lose is a desperate and dangerous foe. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The three and a half years again. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. 
But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Another uh, uh, allusion to the history of the Exodus, the, the woman being saved by the eagles who carried her away, also found in Zechariah. Remember, Israel was lifted out of Egypt and bondage in Egypt on eagles' wings. Here is the promise of God's protection, even in the worst times of persecution. But God will send his help. Satan will send great rivers to sweep away the church, but God will frustrate even these mighty powers with devices of his own. All simply images of the supernatural warfare that Satan will make against the church and the divine power by which she will be protected. The rest of her offspring, the woman's offspring, will be all the Christians who are yet in the world or to be in the world. All those Christians who have not yet overcome the devil by the word of their testimony. In other words, you and I are the rest of her or among the rest of her offspring. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Ordinarily at Christmas time, one expects a sermon on Isaiah chapter 7 and its prophecy of the virgin birth made 700 years before the Lord's entrance into the world or Isaiah 9 and its count of the victorious uh, uh, reign of the Messiah, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Or a sermon from one of the birth narratives in Matthew or Luke. We'll have such a sermon next Lord's Day morning, Christmas Sunday. But there are other Christmas texts, and this is one of them, Revelation 12, though perhaps not one often read at this season of the year, but it does speak of the male child who will rule over the nations with an iron scepter and of his birth. I wonder if this text will become more familiar to Christians as we enter a period of more virulent unbelief in the Western world. We in the, in the American church have for generations had a much harder time seeing our lives or the life of the church in terms of this deadly conflict between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. We have a harder time seeing our lives in terms of our role in this desperate battle because life has been good to us. We have lived comfortably and we have suffered little or none at all, at least publicly, because we are Christians. So perhaps it was natural at Christmas time for us to gravitate to the beauty of the pastoral scenes painted for us in the Gospel of Luke or in the account of Matthew of honor paid to the newborn king by the wealthy magi who come from the east or by those riveting accounts of supernatural events that attended the entrance of God the Son into the world. The announcement and then the birth of John the Baptist to a barren mother, the annunciation to Mary the virgin birth itself, the announcement to the shepherds, and so on. All these things that litter the Christmas narrative and make it so beautiful and so memorable. It was the Christian way to attend to Christmas in a culture that itself loved Christmas. 
sang the Christmas songs of Christ at his birth, and associated the story with Norman Rockwell's scenes of winter beauty and family cheer. And as unbelief in the biblical history of the birth of Jesus became more fashionable in our culture, we found another reason to be interested in those birth narratives as historical accounts that now needed to be defended and verified. But it has not been as natural for us to see Christmas and the birth of the Messiah, beautiful as that history is in so many ways, precious as it must be to all Christians, as a thunderous salvo in the terrible battle that would decide the great war that is itself the story of mankind in this world. But without a doubt, that's what we are being given here in Revelation 12, and we have the echo of it, surely, in the birth narratives itself and the attempt of Herod to murder the newborn king and so on. What we're given here is a philosophy of history, an understanding of the meaning of human history, with Christmas and the birth of Christ, its great turning point or pivot, its, shall we say, Pearl Harbor or D-Day. Human affairs, whether on the grand scale of men and nations, of great revolutions of thought and life, of the progress of science, of the history of war and so on, or on the smaller scale of the circumstances of a single person's life, are all in one way or another the reflection of a great war being fought in the heavenly realms between the kingdom of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of the evil one. Human beings are always, whether they know it or not, and they usually do not know it, fighting on one side or another of this war, and their individual circumstances, happy or painful as they may be, are what they are precisely because they amount to individual and specific engagements of this larger battle. Perhaps only a minor skirmish on one spot in the great battlefield of this world, strewn as it is everywhere we look with the carnage of this war. If the weather is sufficiently clear and you are in the right spot, you can sometimes in Tacoma see the night sky to the south lit up by the artillery firing away on the Fort Lewis ranges. In some places, you can hear the rumble of the guns soon after you see the reflection of the flash against the night sky. Well, according to the picture painted for us in John's vision here, life is like that. What we see in the world are the distant flashes of artillery and the battle going on in the heavenly realms. And what we hear is the rumbling of those great guns as Satan's forces and Michael's tear into one another. Is this not the explanation for what so mystifies us about life in this world. The pervasiveness, the sinister darkness, the intractable momentum of evil. We never escape the next announcement of the horrible things that human beings have done to one another. The explanation is that there are great spiritual forces at work in this world that are darkness themselves and take human beings who, alas, are only too willing to be taken 
up into their plans and their programs. War is terrible, painful, fearful. And accordingly, so is human life. So much of what men seek in this world is just some relief from the terror and the sorrow and the struggle of this war, even though they do not realize that this is the explanation for their pain and sorrow. The great religions of the East were born in human woe. Buddha sought a way to escape the trials and sorrows and pains of this life into an existence defined by the absence of everything we associate with war, pain, sorrow, loss. Another example, American politics is simply the struggle of rival understandings of how best to eliminate or at least to diminish human pain and suffering. But nowhere is the explanation of the struggle, the pain and the sorrow of human life so profoundly and honestly explained as it is in the Bible. Something is happening in this world that makes it inevitably a struggle for everyone who lives in it. A war is being fought, and every human being is a participant in that war, and often, and in many different ways, a victim of its violence. And leading one side is a creature of perfect evil, cruelty, heartless indifference to the sufferings of others. And his power is such that he drafts soldiers as he will. And they cannot resist him, even if they wished to do so. Human beings, you see, do not merely observe the flashes of distant cannon. We fire and aim the cannon ourselves. We're combatants in the very same war that is being waged in heaven. Our Savior overcame the devil, but, it, but in Christ, as we read in verse 11, we overcome him also. Our lives, our faith, our serving Christ are the weapons that the kingdom of heaven employs with its battle against Satan and his legions, just as unbelief and disobedience and rebellion of multitudes of human beings are the weapons that Satan employs on his side. Think in particular of verses 4 and 5 and compare them to verse 11. All the beloved history of Zechariah and Elizabeth, Gabriel's announcement to Mary and Joseph, the shepherds, the angelic choir, the manger, and the wise men are reduced to this. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The triumph was Christ's, to be sure. He won the victory. He cast Satan down. He made certain heaven's eventual triumph in the war. But how was the victory secured? How did he manage the conquest of the evil one. Well, he used in part the faithfulness of an old priest and his barren wife, the sturdy faith of a young couple just betrothed who believed the word of God and acted on it in defiance of appearances. 
and long miles of searching on the part of some intrepid Eastern Magi, and so on. Think, brothers and sisters, this view of Christmas is certainly not less wonderful or less beautiful. It's grander still. This chapter begins, A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun was pregnant. We see Christmas here as part of this titanic struggle between two kingdoms. The fateful blow struck in that great battle would determine the outcome of the whole war. And seeing Christmas in those terms and linking it as John so carefully does in his vision here in verses 11 and verses 17 to ordinary Christian faith, obedience, and devotion, we are given so much higher a view, so much more solemn a view, so much more heroic a view of yours and mine daily, yours and my daily life, of our remembrance of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and of what we have done in our serving Christ based on his appearance in the world. I thought of Antoine Cour when I read verse 6 and of the church fleeing into the wilderness or the desert. You perhaps remember this great reformed churchman. He lived in the 18th century the period of the most intense persecution of Protestants in French history. A century and a half after the Reformation, it had been again made illegal to be a Protestant Christian, and the penalties for failing to conform were brutal. Loss of the rights of citizenship, loss of property, the threat of one's children being taken from you by the state, imprisonment, and in many cases, the terrible servitude of a galley slave. But as always, during the church's darkest days, there were those who, as we read here, overcame the forces of the evil one by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Marie Durand was imprisoned for 38 years because her brother, a Protestant minister, had performed her wedding service. Baron de Salga, who had been a lukewarm Christian during the days of ease, found himself a galley slave. It is the happiest time of my life, he wrote. I live among brigands, but my Savior died between two thieves. One Catholic priest, Jean Bion, chaplain of the galley Le, Le Superbe, became a Protestant Christian through the example and witness of Christian men on his ship, and then went to London and published an account of their suffering. It was into this world of terrible persecution that young Antoine Cour was born and raised by a devout Christian mother. With the gifts and graces of a true leader, he began to organize the church, scattered as it had been by the blows of the enemy, and he began to reform its life and its doctrine. As often in times of persecution, false doctrine had made its way into the church and had to be wrung out. He called clandestine synods to restore a theological order to the church and to oversee the church's ministers. New churches were being formed and led by pastors who daily risked death preaching the word of God and their congregations risked imprisonment for listening to them. 
Worship was held in secret places. Sentries stood nearby, ready to give the alarm if the authorities should appear. It was, of course, necessary to provide more pastors if the church were to be strengthened and God's people to receive proper spiritual care. And so Kur, with the aid of others, established a seminary in Lausanne, Switzerland, and there trained men who would return to France to the illegal and dangerous work of the Protestant ministry. Some of them returned to France only to be arrested and executed. Indeed, with a kind of dark humor, the diploma of Antoine Cour's seminary in Lausanne came to be known as the Brevet de Potence, the certificate for hanging. Now, what made me think about Antoine Cour and those terrible and wonderful days in France was that at that time, the Christians referred to their churches as the churches of the desert or the churches of the wilderness. Their synods or church assemblies are known to church history as the synods of the desert. All the ecclesiastical papers of the time were dated from the desert. They were using desert in exactly the sense in which it is used here in Revelation 12.6 and then again in verse 14. The word translated wilderness in those two verses, is used in the Bible for the desert of Judea and is often translated desert. Here it is a metaphor for the place of the, of the church's persecution in the world, hunted by the devil seeking to devour her, but also the place where the Lord would protect and preserve her as he protected and preserved Israel in the wilderness. France is not a desert country. There's no part of France that is desert. But in the 18th century, the believing French church was in the desert because she was under the direct assault of the evil one and utterly dependent upon the nourishment of the Lord. All of us, everyone, brothers and sisters, inhabit the world that John has here described for us. We live in the wilderness this earth on which we now stand is the same earth that John saw as a desert where the church of Jesus Christ was harried by the dragon whom the Messiah had hurled down from heaven. You'll have to leave this world, my friends, if you would have a life that was not part, is not part of this warfare that rages in heaven and on earth. Whether you know it or not, whether you feel it or not at any particular time, you are engaged in a great war. You may not be doing all your duty in battle. You may, from time to time, by your lethargy and your negligence, be giving comfort to the enemy. But you cannot escape the battle. Neither God nor the devil will let you escape. Some of you know very well that you're in this battle. You know you have been harried into the desert by the evil one, you can hear him baying and feel him nipping at your heels. Sometimes it seems as if the river that spews out of the devil's mouth is near to drowning you. But it will not. God will open his mouth to swallow the river up. Let him rage. He has been defeated by the blood of the Lamb. When I'm among you as your pastor, I sometimes am struck by the terrible wounds 
that some of you have suffered in these battles and also by the bravery that I witness. But sometimes, rarely, I'm very thankful to say, I also see some cowardice, a readiness to turn and run from the thick of the fight to find safety somewhere else on the battlefield. But what I never have any difficulty believing is that John got this world and our lives in it exactly right in Revelation 12 when he described the story of human life in these bloody terms. And I don't doubt that he said all that needed to be said when he told us not only that victory would come in due course, but how that victory would come. By that mopping up that we must still do after Christ has defeated Satan, delivered the killing blow to his enemy and ours. They overcame him, that is, they overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the words of their testimony. They did not love their lives as to shrink from death. Rather, they obeyed God's commandments and held to the testimony of Jesus. There stands Christmas in the exact middle of that history, a great turning point in the war that must continue until the end of the age. And what is Christmas for a true Christian in light of its exposition in Revelation 12? It's a time to pledge oneself once again to be Christ's faithful soldier until the end of one's life in this world. Then outspake brave Horatio, the captain of the gate, to every man upon this earth Death cometh soon or late. And how can man die better than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers and the temples of his gods? And how much more when it is the living God, the real God, the true God, for whom we fight, and the faithful saints of past days in whose steps we tread. And when we know that, however desperate the battle, however apparently triumphant evil may be for a season, we are certain of one thing. We will be the ones left standing in the field. Amen.